Citadel, I was a football player there. Well, at the Citadel, I started the gospel choir. I was one of the founders of the gospel choir, and I played for them my first year, played the piano. And after that, uh, I would sing special concerts with the cadet chorale. And if they had a big solo piece, they'd ask me to sing it. And afterwards, that was it. You know, I went into corporate America. I worked for 3M and singing at everyone's wedding I can think of and all my teammates and singing the national anthem at baseball and football games and that was pretty much what I did for singing for a number of years until whilst living in Woodbridge, Virginia, my wife, Denise, suggested that I, no, she didn't even suggest it. She actually sneakingly set me up an audition for uh, the Choral Arts Society of Washington with Norman Scribner. And I woke up Saturday morning and I didn't know I had an audition. I'm just going, you know, to do my normal thing, cut the grass and wash the cars and she says, you got an audition at 1 o'clock, so you better get ready. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I grabbed an old score of the Mozart Requiem, and that's all I had. And I walked in, and, and it was actually a full score for some reason. He ended up playing the, the introduction to the Tuba Mirum. And I walked in, and Tuba Mirum Spartan So I did the whole thing. And he stopped and says, who are you? And I'm like, I'm this guy that lives in Woodbridge. And so he's like, well, your voice doesn't fit in my chorus, but... You should be in it because you need to be singing. And that was kind of the point where it became apparent to me that other than Aunt Susie, who sits on the first row at the Baptist church, someone with credentials that knew what they were talking about actually was mesmerized by the sounds I could make. So that was, to me, the first sign of confirmation that I might be onto something. That was opera singer Morris Robinson. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Let's face it, we don't often think about opera singers as being former football players or former corporate salesmen. But as we heard, that's exactly the background of Morris Robinson. Morris might have taken an untraditional path to opera, but it's fair to say he has very definitely arrived. Singing with the Metropolitan Opera, Boston's Lyric Opera, Opera Pacific, the Philadelphia Opera, and on and on. He's become a sought-after singer with his resounding bass and commanding presence. He claims the stage as his own. I had the opportunity to speak with Morris at the Phoenicia International Festival of the Voice, where he sang the role of Il Commodatore in Don Giovanni. I began my conversation with Morris by asking him what drew him to opera. I don't know if I'll figure that out yet, but (laughs) (laughs) I started studying voice at the age of 30. I was in corporate America and auditioned for a weekend program up in New England at the New England Conservatory of Music, singing the, the national anthem. And when I sang that, the lady there that was playing for me suggested that I join the opera studio because of my voice. And uh, in high school, I'd done the Mozart Requiem. I'd done the Haydn's Creation. But, you know, nothing, no real opera. That was all oratorial stuff. And at the age of 30, I got into this program on the weekend. And that led to me being in a musical in Salem, Mass, called Satan Ella, where I played the role of the de- devil. And Sharon Daniels happened to be at that production from Boston University because 
she had a private student that was in that production with me, and she walked up to me afterwards and said, you really are onto something here, and uh, I don't hear voices like yours all the time. You should consider, really consider, doing opera for a living. And I was like, well, you know, I don't have a degree in music. I've never done this before. She says, look, I want to run one of the most prestigious organizations in the opera world, and it's, you know, we only take 12 singers, and most of them have their master's degree. But I think we can make an exception for you if you commit to us and you, you know, you're sharp. So anyway, I auditioned for her program in the spring and she let me in on full scholarship with a stipend and that was kind of it. I haven't looked back since. What a story. Had to quit my job, had to turn in the company car, had to take a part-time job at Best Buy on the weekends and stuff like that. But it it worked out, you know, it it worked out. There are sacrifices you make Mm -hmm. to do something that you enjoy to do. And I think the rare gem is being able to find the opportunity to make a living at something you enjoy doing. And if you can do that, it farly outweighs, it, it by far outweighs all of the, uh, the other accoutrement that go with, you know, working in corporate America or, and the stability of that type of living because you're in, in, at the end of the day, you're happier. Did you know how to read music? Is that something that you're learning now? Well, Tell me I, how that works. I read music. I was in the high you school did. chorus. Uh, and I was also in the band, so I could read music at, you know, a moderate high school level. I had a very, very good ear. I've always been blessed with the ear for music. And I just, for some reason, God has blessed me with the ability to just get certain things. One of them is playing the drums, which I never took a lesson at and played all my life. And the other thing is being able to pick up on music, musical styles and kind of understand the intention of why a composer made a chord progression this way and, and why it flows this way and why he wrote it this way and why he put this word on this note as opposed to this. You know, it's things that you study in university and conservatory. Sometimes you're blessed with an innate ability to, to be musical and to be artistic and to understand the flow of, of a musical line. And I was I think I'm blessed with that ear. Uh, the rest of the academia I had to put to use and, you know, use my brain for was learning the languages and learning the pronunciation and that type of thing. But the other stuff, I actually came in here with a stacked deck because I was blessed with some natural abilities. Now, I don't want people to get confused and think that I didn't have to work hard. In fact, one of the logical reasons for leaving corporate America was I was working so hard with those guys. I figured if I put that much time and effort into myself and cultivated what this is I had naturally, I could eventually make something out of that. So I worked incredibly hard to to catch up with where the voice suggested that I was professionally, you know, studying with kids that already had their master's degree and had already been through six to eight years of training. And I walk in one day, I'm a sales rep. The next day I'm trying to be an opera singer. So I had to catch up with those guys. And, you know, in this community, it's really funny. It's uh, it's really wonderful. You walk in, people know that you're completely green, but they see that you have talent, but they also see that you have drive and ambition and discipline and, and hunger and you want to study and you want to get better. And they really open your arm, their arms and help you along. I had students that were my classmates that were stay up extra nights with me and, and help me learn things and help me learn phrases and things. You know, just very, a very welcoming atmosphere. Well, we're here in Phoenicia, New York, at Festival of the Voice. And tomorrow night, you'll be singing in Don Giovanni. Yeah. And the rehearsal time was, what, two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> well, yesterday, uh, we went through the whole piece. Today... I walked out for about two minutes because, you know, it's a concert version, so it's moderately staged. But this is also the second operatic role I did. Uh, Boston Lyric Opera, very much like the Metropolitan Opera, took me under their wing and gave me all of these smaller supporting roles while I was studying at BU. 
and the commendatory was one of those roles. So, and the, it's funny when I got that role, Bill Lumpkin and uh, Stephen Lord and Stephen Steiner all said, "You better learn this well because you're gonna be singing this for the rest of your life." And there has not been one year in my operated career that I have not sung at least one commendatory. So, hopefully, I can sing it until I'm old and wobbly and <laughs> well you certainly take over the stage it might be a concert version of the opera but right. i was at the rehearsal yesterday and you hold that stage well you know i'm really the highest ranking official in the opera uh in the first scene you know obviously i walk out to break up giovanni uh taking advantage of my daughter but you know i'm a, I'm a very dignified and high-ranking official and the last scene is 50 50 is the goods that you bring to the table and what Mozart wrote. I mean, Mozart takes care of a lot of it for you because of the way he wrote the music. But if you can bring some goods to the table and bring a, a, a very commanding voice and commanding colors, well, I always say this jokingly, but it is kind of the truth. By the end of the opera, there are three bases on stage, and the commendatory has to be the best one in that scene. You have to have the most power, the most volume, the, the darkest and most intimidating color, and you have to be in command of that scene lest you blow it. So my job is to walk out and, and compete with two bases that have been singing the whole opera, and I have to go out fresh and try to get them. So there's a little competitive nature in that role. <laughs> singing in a church didn't you actually i grew up playing the drums in church i did sing uh, my first solo was at the age of six singing uh can't nobody do me like jesus with the pastor's choir a little kitty choir we had at israel baptist church in atlanta but my family was full of singers you know my mom started the gospel choir and was a soprano in the gospel choir my dad was in the same gospel choir and he's a baptist minister so you know they all sing you know, my sisters all sing and I was kind of the guy that had the musical ear to play instruments. But I, I, I could sing, and I just didn't. My mom actually made me start singing when I got to the high school of the performing arts. I auditioned for the band, and she made me audition for the chorus. And uh, I got in, so <laughs> she, she, she was uh, kind of foresighted with that. Where did you grow up? Atlanta, Georgia. And they have a school of performing arts there? Yeah, it was the Northside School of Performing Arts. Billy Dinsmore ran that. And... Uh, it was a magnet program. You had to audition to get in. And I was a unique case because I had already gotten accepted into the band. You were supposed to do two periods of one discipline. Well, he allowed me to split time because he loved my voice. He let me do one period of band and one period of voice. And then football season rolls around, and I'm in the marching band, and I realize that I don't want to be in the marching band. So I go to the band director in the spring and say, look, I'll play the spring concert, but I'm going to football practice. And he's like, what are you doing? You just made all city. I was like, no, nah, I'm going to play football. So I ended up going to the course full-time, which allowed me to stay in the program. It's funny. The irony is 
I sang in order to play football, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then, you ended up at the Citadel. Does the Citadel have a music department? No. No, the Citadel is uh, the antithesis of uh, artistic expression, if you ask me. (laughs) It is a military academy, very regimented, very disciplined. But at the same time, you're dealing with a level of guys that have obtained a certain amount of academic achievement and are probably more intellectual, which means they're they're more open-minded. Even on the football field, in the locker room, I experienced bewilderment and a liking for the fact that I was able to sing. And I was in the high school chorus and sang things in different languages, and they in, in Latin at least, and they were mesmerized by that. They actually thought it was a pretty cool thing, whereas some people would have thought it was you know, a little odd and different. These guys, the interworkings you could see going through people's minds when you do something, they're like, well, that's actually pretty interesting. So it was an environment that allowed you to be yourself because the more exposed people are and the more intellectual they are, the more likely they are to be accepting of, of varying things. And that's what happened to me there. So it was a pretty cool experience with that. Do you remember your first full-length, fully staged opera? Absolutely. What was yeah. it? It was Aida. And I was singing The King. I mean, it was at Boston Lyric Opera. And it was about a month and a half after I started studying. I mean, the first month was like a whirlwind. I was singing Bluebeard's Castle in Bluebeard in English in a semi-staged piano production at the school and auditioned for the chorus at Boston Lyric Opera. And the director of music wanted to hear me because they had been talking about me. And he gave me some music and said, I want you to learn this and sing it for me next week. And auditioned for them. It was a music for the King and Aida. I said, we'll be back in touch with you. They called back to the school when I got there and says, we know you don't know what you're doing, but you're singing the King and Aida with the Boston Lyric Opera. Don't mess up. <laughs> so I was used to pressure. I mean, football and being in sales, and you know, I'm used to that type of thing. It's just a matter of preparing myself to make sure that I can do the best that I can. And I remember opening night, standing on stage, holding the onks, and the curtain went up for the triumphal first scene of the king walking in. And I walked out there, and this house is full. I think the Schubert Theater held like 2,300 people, and the stage is full of the chorus, and everything's happening, and the conductors down there and they got on tuxedos now this isn't rehearsal and i thought for about a brief second what in the world am i doing here i really it's just like went through my mind like i can't believe i'm here and then i took a deep breath and i started singing and it just uh that's been it that's that was it i mean I, that's what i do now that's my thing you know were you hooked <laughs> i was i was hooked because uh you know anything that you do and you feel a sense of accomplishment because you worked hard for it a lot of people think in this business that Morris Robinson is some freak of nature who has this great bass voice, who everything comes easy for him. They have no idea how hard I have to work to be at the level of my colleagues when I'm on stages, even at the Boston Lyric Opera, which is one of the premier houses in America and in New England. And, you know, I have to work really hard to get to a level of artistic acceptance at that level. Now, you know, you're singing at the Metropolitan Opera in San Francisco and Houston and Chicago and Florida Grand and, you know, Philadelphia, you know, the bar is always raised and it's always excruciatingly high and you have to make yourself be at that level. So it takes lots of preparation. You know, I just got done doing uh, my first Tosca at Ravinia with Maestro James Conlon and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in that cast, Patricia Rossette, Bryn Terfel, Salvatore Lititra and Morris Robinson, you know, it's like, how does that even go together, you know, but for the very small role of Angelotti, I remember spending four hours with a coach to learn that role and make sure the Italian was impeccable. 
And that's what I was going to say to you, because the thing that that would be most difficult for me coming at this, it's not just the music. It's the languages. Yeah. You can't just learn it by rote because you have to express right. emotion. Yeah, there's no shortcuts. You have to know what you're singing. You have to know the scene. You have to know what the people around you are saying. And I think a lot of the times, one of the natural abilities that God has blessed me with is to pick up on the score. And musically, the great composers like Puccini, for instance, or Mozart, they write in the score exactly what you're feeling. And if you just go with the emotion of the music, you got about 65% of it figured out. The rest of it comes with the nuances of expression and the words and utilizing them correctly and, and putting the inflection on the right syllables and, and those types of things. That's the next level, if you will. But that was the academic part. And I consider myself a relatively bright guy. I mean, I played football, but I played offensive line, so you got to be smart to play offensive <laughs> line. But um, that was the challenging part. Open your mouth and making sounds, that's challenging for a lot of people too. That part worked for me. The other part, I still work on it every day. I mean, I'm, I'm Morris Robinson. I'm, I'm a professional. I sing a lot of places. And people don't understand that I fly back to New York all the time just to work with the highest level coaches I can find to make sure that I'm singing at the highest level available to me. You put out a CD called Going Home. And it's exquisite <laughs> interpretations of old spirituals. Tell us how this developed. Well, how it developed was Costa Pilavachi, who was at DECA at the time. I guess he kept hearing about me. When I was in New York, I was doing a lot of 9-11 events. I was singing at Yankee Stadium for the Yankees games. I was doing things all around town. And there were a couple of articles in the New York Times and stuff like that, USA Today. And he liked me. And we sat down one day and we talked about if given the opportunity, what would you do? Uh, to record. And I said, well, you know, I'd always thought that if I got an opportunity to record, the first thing I'd like to do is do something spiritual. But I don't want to be in a concert hall with a piano. I want to do it a little bit differently. I want to make sure that I paid respect and gave gave my respects to, to God, who had given me this talent. So it was kind of out of left field. I mean, it doesn't go in line with what I do for a living. In fact, I was not a gospel singer at all. But if I'm going to do something, the first thing I'm going to do, my mother always taught you, you know, before you eat, the first thing you do is pray. Before you go to bed, you pray. Before you do anything, you make sure that you thank God for what he's given you. So if this is going to be my, my debut, I want to make sure I did that. Do you differentiate between gospel and spirituals? I do. Well, spirituals historically were a clandestine, covert, secretive language that was utilized by the slaves as kind of clues and passwords and rites of passage, if you will, from plantation to plantation, from field to field, from house to field. There were hidden lyrics inside these beautifully written traditional tunes that let people know that the massa was around the corner. And it helped assist things like the Underground Railroad and all kinds of things. And then it morphed into an art form. Gospel is like a whole different thing. I think I think gospel spun out of that. But I think now more so than ever, gospel has so many jazz and contemporary and R&B type riffs to it. But it's just joyful noise. It's praise, you know, it's good news. And I'm very much a fan of gospel music. I enjoy the spirituals and I think it's beautifully written stuff. And and every time I do a concert, I make sure that because I spend so much time singing Italian and German composer stuff, I want to make sure I give something back to not just American, but African-American composers as well. How did you choose the, the spirituals that you included on your CD, Going Home? Well, it was collaborative. I mean, Robert Satan was the uh, producer, and he did Kathleen Battles 
a few of her albums. He, he also worked with the Clark Sisters, who are legendary gospel singers. So, you know, I brought some things to the table. He brought some things to the table. Uh, Cyrus Chestnut, Joe Joubert, they're all involved. And, you know, we just tried to figure out what would work and what would be different and tried not to be like everybody else. And I think it worked. I enjoyed that project. It was stressful. Uh, my son had just been born right when I was recording it, so I wasn't getting much sleep at night. <laughs> but uh, it was great. You know, I went to London and recorded with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and we have four orchestral tracks, and the rest of it was creating as we go with some great musicians and great interpretations and collaborative efforts. I love your rendition of Wade in the Water. kids they love that wade in the water it's a it's a unique arrangement i love it i sang the track and then all the magic took place and i was at home sleep and i woke up the next morning and i got an email and i was like how do you have all those bongos in it and what's this if you listen to it there's like brush rubbing and that it sounds like someone running through the woods and you got the african drums playing and so it kind of sets a scene but my son's kindergarten teacher found out that his dad was an opera singer because i don't talk about these things and uh she bought my album, so during quiet time or reading time, she played Wade in the Water. And my son was sitting there, and he's like doing this little writing all So He looked up and said, hey, that's my dad. <laughs> and he came home, and he was all excited about it. But um, I think my favorite song, for different reasons, the first one, Walk With Me, Lord, is like, it kind of sets the tone, you know, that this is not going to be your normal opera singer singing gospel music with a an Italian technique. You know, it starts off, Walk with me, Lord, walk with me, walk with me, Lord, walk with me, while I'm on this pilgrim's kind of started it was me just grab the mic and start singing it and the bass player just started that boom boom doom, doom, doom. and and then uh cyrus and and joe picked up and before you know it rob was like hit record hit record <laughs> <laughs> record it record so that's organically how some of those things happen and that was one of those situations it was like he started playing a riff i started singing Cyrus ran and jumped on the piano. Joe jumped on the organ. And before you know it, he's like, roll the tape, roll the tape. And we got it. And then we went back and redid it because now we had it figured out. And yeah, it was great. So I love that. What's the difference for you between performing and doing studio work? Well, my studio work is limited. I did studio work in high school because we laid all the tracks for our production, our traveling production. It's two different worlds. There's nothing like live performance. You know, in the studio, you can sing and cough in the middle of a track and go back and do it again. Or if you don't like it, you can do it in. When you're on stage, you get one shot. And if it's not a great night for you, if your voice isn't great, 
if you're in Phoenicia, New York, in the woods, in the mountains with mosquitoes and, and allergens all in the air, and I'm very allergic to a lot of things, don't matter. You got to go. It's time to go right now. It's like playing football. I mean, you know, you wake up one morning, you got a crook in your neck. Well, that's game day. Suck it up. You got to go because you got 22 other guys starting that are depending on you to do your job. So that's what I love about it. Don't get me wrong. I love the studio stuff. And when I'm at home with my keyboard and cakewalk and Pro Tools, I can make you think I'm a, an accomplished pianist. But when you walk out on stage and the lights are in your face and the conductor's in the pit and you can't tell him, hold on one second, Maestro, I need to swallow. No, it's time to go. You know, and that's that's the competitive side. That's the it's game time, it's time to do it side. But also, that's also where preparation begets opportunity. I've done this a million times. I know how to prepare myself. I know I shouldn't have eaten that hot dog two hours before the show, but I got to suck it up now and burp silently. You know, <laughs> all those things happen, you know, and you try to develop a routine where that isn't an issue. But live performance is live performance. If you forget a word, well, you forgot a word. You just roll with it. And so far, I've, I've been able to uh, be pretty successful at this. So, <laughs> You sure have, Morris. Thank you. Thank you. That was singer Morris Robinson talking about his career in opera and his recent CD of spirituals, Going Home. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Don Giovanni, sung by Morris Robinson, Carrie Henderson, and Louis Oti. Used courtesy of the Phoenicia International Festival of the Voice. Excerpts from Wade in the Water, Walk With Me, and Going Home. Sung by Morris Robinson from the CD, Going Home. Used courtesy of Universal Music Group. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link in our podcast page. Next week, Native American filmmaker Billy Luther. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>